0: editing. <laughs> uh, <laughs> all right. Hello, everyone. You are listening to episode 325 of the App Percussion podcast. I am your host, Ksenia Komlianovic, and with me are my splendid friends, Ben Charles. Hey, Ksenia. How are you? Hey, Ben. I'm doing well. How are you?
1: I'm good. It's good to be back home after my travels to your place. It's nice to see you in person, hey. even if we didn't manage to get a picture together. <laughs>
0: Second time's a charm. We'll do it in a couple of weeks, definitely. It was great to have you here. The students loved it. Thanks so much for coming and laying down the law of Of playing. Yeah. (laughs) Awesome. Um, Caleb Pickering.
2: What's
0: up? I don't know.
2: I don't know how to answer it. I just know how to say hello. How are you? I learn one Serbian phrase every time we do an episode. So we're off to a great start.
0: And most of them are curse idioms. Yeah, yeah,
2: I only know curse idioms and hello, how are you?
0: That's all you need uh, to speak normally. Also, I just want to preface: if there are any people who do speak Serbian, I apologize that for some reason I wanted to sound like an American struggling to speak Serbian. So okay. that's that's not my actual accent. I I still speak fairly well. Um, and then we have our buddy Tracy Wiggins. Tracy, what's up?
3: I'm just sitting here being old.
0: <laughs> oh no! No. Hello. No, I this just
3: is, this is just tying it all into the last one I was on so. <laughs> No, it's good we've reached Easter break and so everybody's trying to catch their breath before the last couple of weeks of classes so
0: good 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 well hang in there we're almost there we're almost there um all right everybody so we're releasing this episode on April 21st and I get to tell you what happened in music history I feel like I'm really lucky that nothing happens um and I can't keep up with Ben's uh, Bach or Nacht, which is atrocious if you speak German. Or uh, Caleb. <laughs> Bach or <laughs> Night. <laughs> <laughs> that does not make any sense. We're all about Dadaism around here. And then Caleb's, uh, what was it? Handel Candle. Oh, scandal. <laughs> and
1: Carly had one too Beethoven or Natoven.
0: <laughs> Y'all are great for puns for old people. Um, anyway, uh, the thing that happened on this day was that the Beatles and the Rolling Stones met some 60 years ago. Actually, I think it's 59 years ago exactly today. Um, so what do you all think, Beatles or Rolling Stones?
1: Beatles.
2: Beatles. Beatles.
0: OK, and we have a winner, the Beatles. Of course, everyone knows the Rolling Stones are just like how an awesome musical marriage. Probably hate each other, um, not great. Music. no just kidding just kidding the Rolling Stones are great don't don't write hate mail if you like the Rolling Stones but I'm glad we all agreed that Beatles it's is where it's at um, All right so we're here to talk about search committees. Um, we have a lot of friends of the podcast listeners who write and say hey we need we need help when we need to figure this out and obviously the system has, Well, its infrastructure is interesting and it has many flaws, um, but we want to help and I get to ask all the questions this time because I've never been on the search committee. I want a job I I got one job interview and I was lucky to get it, but I have never been um, on the other side, so I have my friends here who are going to teach me all about it because they've all done it multiple times. So.
1: Or at least one time currently.
0: <laughs> there you go. Just started. But still, it's all fresh, so you can, you can help out. So um, for all of those who are not sure, of course, we're describing mostly the job interview process in the US. Some of these things might um, happen in other places as well, but we're talking about America. Um, so why don't you tell us uh, what the process is of like, getting the paperwork and so on? Because we can agree that the process begins with a person sending an application, and that application might need or it definitely needs a CV or a resume, a cover letter, it might need some videos, um, and it might need like a teaching philosophy. And please correct me if I'm missing uh, anything. So go
1: ahead. Yeah, well, I was, I was gonna say a couple of things just to get us started off here. One, we did discuss this a bit, um, not as extensively as today, um, many episodes ago with john parks, Um, which I actually didn't look up what number that was, but it was probably like episode 28 or something It was way early on, we talked with john parks about this. Um, So there's some more info there and and john is is wonderful and if you look at how many people from Florida State get jobs it's it's pretty clear that he knows what he's doing, but I was just going to sort of introduce. um, The the process from both sides of the equation, um, especially if you're a college student listening wondering how this works. So from the applicant's perspective, there are job listing sites. And Caleb just looked it up, it was uh, episode 19 with John Parks. Um, But for the applicants, there are job listing sites. One of the most common ones is higheredjobs.com. And you can search for percussion on there, and there will be job listings that pop up. And of course you submit an application. Often there are supplemental materials asked like a diversity statement, a statement of teaching philosophy, uh recordings of course your cv um, and a cover letter are all pretty common to be asked on those Um, and so once your application gets in it gets sent to the committee at the university to review uh, and then they narrow it down to a maybe eight people or so maybe four to eight for zoom or phone interviews and then they bring two or three people on campus from the employer's side um, usually the department chair will select a committee chair and then either the committee chair or the department chair will select a committee uh, it's usually an odd number of people so they don't end up with a tie um, and those people will sometimes be involved hopefully be involved with the writing of the job posting um, and then once the applications come in you can imagine that they get to review all the applications and materials and narrow them down that way so i think tracy had something to add to that
3: yeah, I think the other thing to is that at least where I am, there's a before any of that, as far as like putting the search out or anything happens, there's actually the committee has to meet with HR um, because they have to go through all of the diversity and equity and all of that information to make sure that they're targeting as wide of a breadth of people for potential candidates as they can get also. Um, and so I know we usually have input as to all the places that the search is going to be distributed and everything. And that's all done in a meeting with HR before we ever even finish writing the description.
2: Yeah. Um, funny enough, I'm in my first year in uh, Northwest Missouri here, and I am on my third search committee. So we have had a lot of new hires this year and coming up for the upcoming year. And just like Tracy was saying, um it's it's funny how there's been jobs i've applied for and read that i thought wow that that's kind of strange um how they phrase something but oftentimes that's not that's not in our hands that's in uh you know the university's kind of boilerplates they have to have this for every single thing um like here we we were unable to put a preferred qualifications and minimum qualifications the university wants us to just have qualifications Um, so you know I think when you're looking at those applications or sorry when you're looking at those advertisements sometimes you have to remember that some of it's some of the verbiage can be out of the hands of of the people who are hiring the job
0: that's very very well said so let's talk about uh, decoding the the job uh, announcement you know the um the sort of information that you do put out there um can you help us figure out is it is it important because i have seen some jobs that do have minimum requirement preferred requirement um is it important that we fill out sort of check every box or how do you how do you sculpt those like tell us how should we decode that stuff that you're sending out to us
1: yes (laughs) it's uh, this is one thing that i learned is like your cover letter like Everyone has their generic cover letter that they're probably swapping out some things hopefully remembering to swap out the school name. Uh, But uh, there are very specific things that they're looking for. Um, And I was actually amazed and I've probably been guilty of this myself but starting to review cover letters, how many of the cover letters didn't actually address what was asked for in the posting. So like we're looking for a teacher of theory. So we get a lot of applicants with composition degrees, which is fine and I think relevant. Um, But if you only talk about your composing and you don't talk at all about your teaching or your curriculum development, you really haven't spoken at all to the requirements of the job. Um, And I will say that no matter how much you want to get a job, if you do not match up with what they're looking for, Like let's say just making up something here they're looking for a flute professor that can also teach music theory. um, And you have no background in music theory at all and in your DMA you study flute performance and music business. That's not the job for you and unfortunately you're not going to get it because you have no theory background at all. Now if you have something that you can spin into well I was a TA for a theory class then like maybe that works, but if you cannot directly speak to the musical or music related things that are listed it's probably not a good fit for you
2: yeah kind of to tag on to ben slash maybe contradict him at the same time um we have hey marco what's going on dude
4: hey y'all how's it going
2: marco has joined the chat <laughs> yes. we, are, we are we are mid in the in the heat of it
4: cool let's make it about me let's do it okay yeah <laughs>
2: yeah so so why do you choose not to cover up your timpani in the back no i'm just kidding
4: because <laughs> i actually practiced them oh that's good, oh. That's good.
2: <laughs> oh man that was sharp let's end the episode there
1: but what are you uh, practicing what are you practicing marco you got a little weird drum set up there
4: oh i'm not currently practicing i'm practicing my my words right now oh, okay. <laughs> like, yeah no we just moved them today so it's fine we get over it. Anyway.
1: So. <laughs>
2: <laughs> back, back to kind of what uh, Ben was talking about. So to agree, agree and disagree, um, we're in the middle of hiring a we are looking for a vocalist slash music theorist, which is a narrow pole. There are not a ton of people that have both of those right in the line um so but we have had a lot of people that like ben was saying they're a good singer and a good applied teacher and maybe they taught theory tutoring or had a ga where they assisted and helped out and they they've spun it where it's just like yeah i'm you know especially here at a regional institution you know if someone's um willing to learn and you know help we can help them develop that skill set, but maybe they're a great classroom teacher and they just need some help developing the, the core component. We are um, much more likely, we have two people we're interviewing um, that have not taught a theory class uh, before. Uh, one has, uh, but it was a long time ago. And the other has a huge track record for um, just good classroom teaching. And so we're, we're kind of banking on there's someone who is a good teacher and can convey knowledge well and help the student or help assess the students and will i'll help them out with the theory side when they get here should
1: they be hired benji yeah and like to to sort of synthesize caleb's point and mine like even if you don't have theory experience necessarily you have to speak to your ability to teach it so spinning something that you have done into it i think was my point not that you have no chance if you especially at a regional university like that if you don't have teaching experience or whatever
2: absolutely
3: yeah i think i think it's kind of the thing of we've all got or for the most part we've all got a wider range of skill sets that it may not always directly like box by box check every single thing that's in that description but if in your cover letter you can talk about how i've had these experiences that i could apply to Doing whatever this other thing is that you've got in the description or whatever, I think that's kind of what they're talking about with the spinning it, not the, not trying to convince the committee that even though you've never taken a single Shinker class in your life, you'd be more than you'd be more than awesome to teach Shinkarian analysis. So it's just kind of like using what skills you've got available and how you can kind of like fit them into the description. And I would just throw in also that I think that. Uh, applies to even before you start looking for jobs get as wide a range of different experiences and stuff like that that you can draw from as possible because i can sit here in my chair right now and say that if i hadn't done the marching thing and march drum corps and stuff like that that has opened every single job door that i've had to this point so i think the more experiences that you can get the more you know if you get a music ed degree as an undergrad, it opens up more things that you can teach at the college level. It makes you more marketable at the college level. If you've done the marching thing, marching band is a thing at most universities. So being able to say, I can help with this or I can do something with this Um, studying jazz drum set, a lot of times these descriptions are going to talk about, you know, needing somebody to work with jazz students or take it, you know, so the more things that you accumulate before you ever even start thinking about actually applying for the job, the more of those boxes you're going to check, you're going to be able to check as you go and the more doors will open. I do think um, one thing to keep in
4: mind though, um, obviously having the wide array of experiences, Um, that you can draw upon is obviously really important, especially as a percussionist, which that's kind of the name of our job. Um, But I will say that um, being on the other side now, seeing situations where someone, um, you know, has some experience, but it's maybe not necessarily enough in an area, trying to build that out and make it sound like it is can be a major misstep. And on, on a certain on a committee that I was recently on, we've had people who, in their cover letters, you know, implied that. Uh, I guess I could actually say, because basically at my university, um, it's a pre- preference that faculty can speak Spanish. Um, and it's not required, but it's nice if you can speak Spanish, right? And we had someone who mentioned, like, hey, I can teach in Spanish like I'm not a fluent Spanish speaker, but I can teach in Spanish. And then when we ended up interviewing them, we found out that that meant they had one time given like a five minute talk in a master class in rudimentary Spanish to one person. And that's a lot different than teaching a collegiate course in Spanish. And they were actually a pretty strong candidate, but it was like, what else are you faking? You know, if that if you made a big deal out of that to us. And so it was like a major um, kind of, I wouldn't necessarily say a red flag. They still seemed like a lovely person, but um, that was an issue.
3: Yeah, and I would say also to follow up just to that too, the internet is a thing. It exists. And the further that you try to stretch your skills are, the easier it's all going to break down on you because it's way too easy to, through social media and everything else, to be able to start ascertain how true a lot of that information really is too.
0: Thanks for, thanks for teaching me and our listeners about all of this stuff, everybody. Also there was Marcos Kiripa right there who joined us. Um, The man with the best hair in the room. And there's a lot of great competitors in the room, I will say. Um, So what would you say to a person who looks at the job description and realizes they have six out of eight points that the job asks, should they address them in the cover letter saying, I don't know anything about this but i'm willing to learn or should they just ghost it or what go caleb
2: i think i think it's it's fine to address it to the point that you can do it um we've had several uh in this job here i mentioned about voice and theory that uh one person i was like yeah i i'm not a theorist but i have you know I'm I would be I would be comfortable teaching theory based on my experiences in theory classes and other classroom teaching. I know I'm a good teacher and I'm good at theory. so you know, a plus B equals C. I'm pretty sure I might not be as good as someone who has a PhD in theory pedagogy or a cognate in in theory pedagogy, but you know, I would be comfortable teaching um, teaching that course. And for us here, you know we keep mentioning regional institutions, for us here that, you know, that's pretty attractive that, you know, someone who's um, maybe kind of green to college teaching, but they're, they're someone that can teach well, and that, you know, will be flexible and, you know, are, is willing to follow, you know, kind of follow the lead on, hey, here's the terminology with, we use, here's the textbook we use, here's kind of our sequencing. And, um, you know, I think a lot of I, uh, I know Cassini and I and uh, Marco and Ben, not so much Tracy are kind of at similar sized uh, institutions. Tracy's is a bit bigger overall for, in my opinion. Um, but yeah, and you know we're not we, we have had the issue here where we have concerns every now and then with an applicant where it's like, okay, this person is a very good player and a very good teacher, you know are we going to keep them, you know, are they going to stay here for that five years to get tenure or six years to get tenure, or are they going to win another gig and move on because we can't afford to do this search again. Um, So there's a lot of things that come up, but uh, Marco's got something.
4: Well, yeah, actually what you literally just said, um, I I actually find that um, to be a really valuable thing to discuss because Um, I was just, I had a search that literally just ended, like we made a hire this week, it actually went very well, very successful search, we had a ridiculously talented applicant pool, we were actually kind of like whoa, (laughs) all these people are applying here, (laughs) and um, there were actually a few names that came up in the discussion where it's like, should we even bother interviewing this person, like, would they even take this job, like, would they take this rank? Would they take an assistant professor rank? Like, look at their resume, you know? Um, you know, and obviously age doesn't play a part in it, but it's very clear they had been doing this a long time and had accomplished a lot. Um, and uh, we talked about that, but one of those people we said that about ended up, to be, ended up being who took the job, um, because you don't know why they're applying for the job. Um, you know, you don't know what their life goals are. For all you know, their significant other got a job in the area, and they're going to live there the rest of their lives. Um, So it's the same thing that one of my teachers told me when they were coaching me and applying for positions where it's like, don't count yourself out of the job until you have the contract on the table in front of you. Just because you don't think you're going to get this job doesn't mean you shouldn't apply for it. Or just because you don't know if you want it doesn't mean you shouldn't necessarily interview because for all you know, you're going to get a contract for $130,000 a year and they'll fly you back and forth. You know, that's not what's (laughs) going to happen, but you don't know that you know, and you get to, and if you get an interview, then you get to eat free food at a lot of the good restaurants. So if nothing else, you get a nice little trip out of it.
3: I mean, that's similar to like in our studio class today, we were actually, we were talking about the audition process, not necessarily for like collegiate jobs or whatever, but more from like the orchestral side and stuff like that. And one of the things I told them is you don't know who else is taking that audition. And the only way that you guarantee you're not going to get the job is by not taking it you know it's the michael jordan thing i may, i miss 100% of the shots i don't take right and so,
1: michael yeah.
3: oh yeah <laughs> um, and so i think i think that's an important point too is that you get, the only way you positively take yourself out of the running for any position is not applying for it because it's as marco was saying you've got you're going to have people that are applying for jobs purely as leverage at their current job because they're trying to get a pay bump or they're trying to get a promotion or something like that. You're going to get people that like my situation, I was in a job for 11 years and I came here because this put us, we went from being 12 hours away from our family to two hours away from our family, you know? And so you're always going to have like situations where people in different life stages and stuff like that, where that's going, that you don't know what's going to be playing into the mix there. And also what I tell my students is that's not your problem. You can't, that shouldn't even enter into your mind. If you feel like you're the person for the job, go for the job. So.
0: Yeah, absolutely. So so you have already shared some horror stories of like, just make sure that you put the right school name in your cover letter and you know, yes. that kind of
3: thing. <laughs> yes, 100%. I teach at the <laughs> University of North Alabama, not the University of Northern Alabama, North Alabama University, nor Northern Alabama University. And we have seen all of those in cover letters recently.
1: And I'm in Stevenville, not Stevensville.
0: So pay, pay attention, treasure your literacy and just proofread everything 10 times and ask someone else to do so as well. But our buddy Matt Nichols um, asked, Uh, What are common mistakes that candidates make that pull them out of the running early? So let's say that this is still in that paper reading stage that you're, you know, checking out their CDs and cover letters. What else is a common mistake?
2: So I can't speak to every university for sure, but we try to make it as objective as possible in the first stage because, you know, we want to like evaluate as objectively as we can um, before we really meet the people and talk to them. Um, So we we use a rubric um, that, you know, a point rubric, Um, but some of the first ones, and I've looked, man, I've looked at so many this year, the amount of badly formatted CVs and cover letters and et cetera is pretty astounding. Um, You know, it, it almost comes down to people that have a really well put together portfolio and those that don't. And based on that alone, the field is like cut in half. I mean, things like spelling mistakes, having weird colors and designs in the background and like, you know, it's just strange things for like an, for a job in academia, not to make it sound elitist because it's not in this instance. It's just like, yeah, if you're applying for a college gig, maybe you don't have a huge custom-made yellow spirally banner that flows across the page um, it's just a little strange but yeah we've been able to narrow or pull down 50% based solely on things like that because I mean it's it's kind of like hey can I trust can I trust you to teach freshman theory one and two if you can't put together you know formulate a coherent thought in a cover letter granted I'm someone who can't formulate a coherent thought out loud on a podcast but besides that um yeah it's it's surprising how I think John Parks in that episode uh I don't want to misquote him but in the first episode 19 talks about like you know in the first stage the the competition is cut in half because half the people aren't aren't qualified and that sounds bad but you know there's we had lots of people that only had a master's that applied. And unfortunately, it's a tenure track job. So we have to have someone with a doctorate um, to keep that tenure track line and, you know, just little things like that.
4: So, yeah, um, I think that, I, yeah, it's a little bit subjective because in a way, like you don't know exactly what they're looking for in, in something like, you know, I've been in situations where I heard like, I didn't quite like the vibe they gave off when they said this. And it's like you can't really like numerically measure vibe um uh vibes maybe but not vibe <laughs> um and so it's like they didn't mention this one aspect we were hoping that they would mention It's like that's true um and i that's definitely a deal breaker but they didn't necessarily know they had to mention that but as far as things that are pretty um pretty clear the big one is I'm pretty sure this is true for everyone. We spend forever writing the job description and all the, the stuff there has to be approved by like 8,000 people. We change, you know, we change uh, to "an." we go through and change all like little pieces of wording just in case it could possibly be misconstrued. So follow the job description, you know, address the job description. Um, if you leave out one of the major points of the the job description in your you know one of the bullet points, we put that bullet point there for a reason. Uh, we want you to address it because we want the person we hire to do these things. Um, and so that that's a big one. If they just straight up didn't mention recruiting at all, well, that's like the most important part of your job because the reason you have a job is because we can you know recruit people. Um, and then. Um, you know, give us what they ask for. Uh, the other thing is, some, like Caleb said, kind of in a similar vein, weird, colorful CVs, like stuff like that. I mean, like if it's good information, and it looks nice. I mean, I guess whatever. But the bottom line is you should, it should be very clear that you put effort into it. If you send us your performance videos for a applied teaching position and you might be an amazing player, but you send terrible quality videos where we have to sit there with a microscope and figure out if you're actually good or not. We, um, it takes a long time to review applications, um, and we're not there to like try to figure out what it was supposed to be, right? Um, and then the last thing is, you know, when you get to that first round interview, um, a lot of the questions are canned and are pretty much the same every time. And a lot of them are the questions where like no one really cares about the answer because like there's like a correct answer or something like that. And um, just to make sure that, you know, you do your research when they ask you the inevitable question of why do you want to work here specifically? We all know the reason you want to work there is because you really want health insurance and you haven't been to the dentist in 15 years, But, but you have to tell us why you want to work here, right? And so you need to do your research. We're expecting that you did your
3: research on the university. Wow. Yeah. And I would say that, I mean, along with that too, it's it's a simple thing at the beginning, but just actually following the directions, like turn in the things that they ask you to turn in. Don't turn in more than you're asked to turn in. Turn in what specifically you're asked for. Have you know, make sure you're applying to the correct school. And I mean, this is an example too. Make sure that when you use your canned cover letter that you get all of the things where you change the names in the cover letter. Because I have actually seen people have like multiple schools in the cover letter before because they just didn't pay attention to it, um, and I mean it sounds like like I'm kind of but these are things like these are the things that are going to get you from this pile to this other pile that they're not even because on the initial read through you're just we want the you want the facts like you want a vita or a resume or whatever that gives you very clearly the facts of what you've done, where you've gone to school, who've been, stuff like that. And it needs to be in a way that we can very easily get the information that we want. Cause we're at the initial stages, we're using a rubric like what Caleb used and we're sorting it into piles. Yes, maybe, probably not, you know, and then that's where we're deciding where we're going to start to go into more depth with who we're actually really going to look at. So.
2: I've kind of have mixed feelings on the whole applied, or applied teaching or classroom teaching videos, because they're often so curated. They're like so so hyper. Like people only present the absolute best, and if something went wrong, then they'll redo the lesson or they'll use a different video. Um, I just
4: want to be clear. I was referring specifically to performance videos.
2: Yeah 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 yeah. Sorry. No, I should have I should have specified. yeah, in terms of and uh, applied teaching or teaching videos, we've gotten several here though. That um, when I applied, they were they asked for two applied teaching videos, and I only had one lesson, so I sent a masterclass video, and that worked out. But we've had um, I didn't think it would be a thing, but we've had a shocking amount of numbers of applicants that when it says applied teaching video they submit like a student performance in a lesson. So we see their students' ability, but we don't see them like critiquing and interacting with the students. Um, I don't know if that's a common thing, but this this year has been very common for us. We've seen, I mean, dozens of of those types of things. Ben, I think you had something very small to add.
1: <laughs> so well, actually, you, you actually made me think of another point. But I was I was gonna say that yeah uh, if you're a graduate student in particular uh, it's relatively easy to churn out a cover letter the night before it's due uh, but it's impossible to make a teaching video or a performance video like within a week of applying for something like you have to have those on file so I would highly advise getting those done and on file and keeping them current so maybe every year doing a new teaching video and keeping a couple of recordings in place. Um, but going back to Matt Nichols' original question of like, what are some things that, that some mistakes that knock people out early on? Uh, one of the things for us was um, errors on teaching videos. And so we actually had one of our semifinalist candidates that was really strong, that many of us liked. And on his or her teaching video, uh, they did a tonicization. Again, this is teaching oral skills and theory, and they sang incorrect pitches. They did the correct solfege, but wrong pitches. And it was one spot on the video, uh, and it was so such a small thing I didn't even notice, but one of our other faculty members pointed out, like this is a content area error. You, you cannot have that on your video. And so that unfortunately knocked that very qualified candidate out, um, which in my opinion might be a, a little harsh because we're not hiring a vocal professor you might sing out of tune every now and then but that was something that just clearly to some people on the committee was too tall of a hill to uh to overcome
2: we did i don't i don't mean to jump the gun but we did have someone that applied for my job that i have now um i I, of course won't say who it is but our department head is a percussionist and during the percussion methods teaching parts i i think something went awry and they said something that was very not correct about snare drum grit and our percussionist direct our department head was like huh that's bizarre um so yeah you never was know was it casey was it casey it was casey it was actually Cassinha and Casey together <laughs> they interviewed um <laughs> I,
3: I was gonna throw in there too something that on the paperwork and stuff like that. Just because you've been in the same room as someone and maybe played for them for 30 minutes for one lesson, one time, does not mean you studied with that person. And this is one that I see a lot, like if somebody will put, they, they played on a master class or something like that, and suddenly the next thing you know, they studied with that individual. Right. You can put that you had a coaching with someone or that you had a lesson with someone or something like that, but studying with someone implies a longer commitment and a longer amount of time working with that, with that individual. And that's yeah, one that I think that's an easy okay. mistake to make, I think, but I see it a lot.
1: I was gonna say if Michael Burrett's phone rings, like if you studied with him, he's gonna know who you are. It's not like, oh, yeah, I think maybe they played for me in a masterclass. One time, maybe, yeah. Like studying with someone is definitely what Tracy is saying.
3: Yeah. And that's the thing too. Like I was talking about too, that's so easy to check because our world is so small. Like if you tell me that you studied with, you know, Ben Charles, I'm gonna call (laughs) Ben. Probably not very good. (laughs) (laughs) That's beyond the that's what's that. I'm gonna I'm gonna call Ben and find out, you know, what can you tell me about this person? You know. It's too easy to check that information now.
0: So last thing about cover letters, um, let's say that you have visited that institution or you have a friend who goes to school there or teaches there, do you suggest to name drop and say hi because of my friend who happens to teach clarinet there, I know that this is an awesome place and I would love to join it or do you think that that is off color to do?
2: No way, I would say no way. Don't do it?
4: And I wouldn't maybe, mention it in the cover letter, necessarily. Yeah. Um, I would
1: just mention it directly to that person, and then they can tell the committee that.
3: Having an advocate on the ground can be super useful, but I don't know that it's the right context there.
4: I will say, though, that um, yeah, I can say this. So the, one of the people that we just hired just so happens to have a brother who is also a professor here in a different department. Uh, like science related stuff, and they did mention in their cover letter, I'm very familiar with the area and I know all this stuff because my brother works there, (laughs) Um, you know, and it wasn't like name dropping. It was just mentioning is like, this is why I know all these things. So I actually have firsthand. And I think we actually kind of saw that as a positive. It's like, oh, you actually do know about this place because you have literally been here before in a non-academic context. Um, But that's a very outlier like random situation. Um, Yeah. The one thing that I wanted to add um, had to do with um, talking about mentioning who you studied with and being able to call that person, you know, call Michael Burrett and see if you actually studied with him. And I want to just reiterate how true that is. On more than one occasion, I've received phone calls from percussionists in our community that I've never met in person before to ask me about people that they knew I know. Um, You know, candidly, like, hey, this isn't like an official reference call, but I know you know this person. Like, what can you tell me about them? Because we have these questions. This is informal, but I would like to know, you know, what you think about this person so we can see what they're saying is true. Um, And more than one occasion, literally from percussionists that I've never spoken to in person before they called me.
1: I was going to say also to follow up on this, what Mark was talking about, uh, when you apply for things, you should be applying as a professional, not a student or a former student. So I don't think that name dropping your teacher is really all that helpful. And I would assume that if you went to Yale, that you probably studied with Robert Van Seis, or if you went to Eastman, you probably studied with Michael Burrett But name dropping a professor i don't think really means all that much in the professional context of things and also outside of the percussion community i don't know how many flute players are going to know who that is
0: um i'd just like to also add that uh, for everything that we or the room mostly agrees on one of us knows of an example where someone did the exact opposite and it worked for them so like this thing what ben just said you know don't name drop your professor i know of a person who has been heavily name dropping the school where they go and that's literally their most of their cover letter from what i saw you know years ago um it's just like i went to this incredible program and so you know i i'm just i'm worth it and it has worked um so again it's it really is this is almost like i feel like this is like we're trying to teach you how to date. And all of this stuff is a little bit like speed dating, like you're scrolling through people and just like rushing through things, trying to get to know who are the candidates that you wanna have there. So for every school, there's a.
1: I I was gonna say, what you said though, is the school. Like, yes, your school carries a lot of weight. Trying to, like, I think your, where your degree is from does matter, but trying to impress someone by saying, I studied with a professor at the school that I went to is less impressive is what I'm saying. If that makes
0: sense. Yeah, yeah, yeah. it makes sense. But I still, again, I know that I, I literally know a person who did something else and it worked for them. So um, the school and the person meant a lot, so that they went hand in hand. Um, But point being, uh, take everything with a grain of salt, and we hope that things don't always work out in the same way, and that you know you should know that you always do have something going for you. So. So Jade Hales, our buddy thanks for your question Jade asked a similar question to Matts, which is what are some red flags or things to avoid when a university job is your end goal, what can be considered beneficial meaningful work for the portfolio versus a waste of time in regards to the hiring process. Um, And I think we've we've agreed on a lot of stuff like you want to do as many things as possible, and you know I think the only thing that will work against you is if you don't do anything. (laughs) Um,
1: I was going to say, the only thing I think I could add to that, like red flags, uh, for younger people, maybe there are people that say, oh, well, I can't pay you, but you should do this for the experience. And maybe you get sucked into doing a bunch of office work for a music festival that you aren't really getting any real even administrative experience, something like that. I think for younger people, that could be a thing to look out for is doing things for the experience points
0: true. In an ideal world, we would love to stop the experience transactions and uh, always include money because guess what? If you work and you work for money, you still get experience. It's the same amount of experience. So you can give me experience with the cash. That's I think that's a great thing. Um, our friend uh, Marcelina Suhotska asked why do they seem to prefer academics? People with 5 Dmas instead of performers. Have you encountered anything like this? Yeah. What?
2: We're we're a, reg- we're a regional institution. We're not we're not Yale. Um, we're we're helping people become music educators, K through 12 educators, um, recording uh, studio folks who are working in studios, um, and and record labels, music therapists. Um, it, yeah, it's not about who can play the it is about the art, but I mean, at the end of the day, we need, I mean, we have a lot of our people here don't have DMAs. They have PhDs in music education. Um, I think it totally depends on, on the gig, right? Like yell. Yeah. You better be able to play your ass off if you're going to be, if you're going to be on Bob Van Size's level. Um, but yeah, some, I mean, some place like I'm at now or, or where Ksenia is or, or Marco or, or Ben even it's just like, yeah, I mean, y'all are, y'all have performers that are coming out of those programs, but I have a feeling that all the three of y'all and um, Tracy as well, we're we're putting out a lot of music educators um, and they don't have to be playing con variations at the end of four years. I know that's like a controversial topic that, Oh, you don't have to play like, Oh, my students can play a good bossa Nova, but they can't play con variations. Well, yeah. Okay. But yeah, you know, yeah why why not there's nothing wrong with being an academic um i don't think at all i mean i think the word academic you know might get misconstrued like if you're an academic are you someone that's actually an academic like are you doing research and studies and like diving deep um but yeah i mean you know why yeah why hire I don't think you have to, sorry, I'm rambling again. I'm doing the Trump thing we talked about last night. Um, um, th- this is the greatest podcast, the best. Many friends know this podcast. They're great guys, all of them. Um, but yeah, you know, I don't think you have to be the top Yale performer to, to get a gig. Like you have to be a good teacher. And yeah, sorry, I'm, I'm not putting out people that are like slaying velocities yet. So, I mean, we, most of my freshmen barely read music and that's fine. So I got to get them from there to where they need to be to be a, a high quality music educator and we'll get to where we get. But, you know, I don't have to be a top end performer for that, in my
4: opinion. I've um I've thought and discussed with people a lot about this exact question, like, why do you have to have a doctorate to get this job or and things like that? Like, I have so much playing experience, like. Why am I not getting the job for my practical experience? And I think that that's a little bit of a generalization. It's not really fair to make that argument because that's not necessarily true. Um, You know, like at, at Indiana, when I had four percussion teachers there, two of them had master's degrees and two of them didn't even have bachelor's degrees. Well, at least in music, you know? Um, So they did have people because they were absolutely world-class, amazing at what they do. Um, But. I think one of the, one of the things to think about is it's not just about playing when you become a professor, especially in a tenure track role, you know, kind of, I think traditionally the role of a professor is a researcher and someone that does, you know, that sort of stuff and teaching is also part of the job. And I think that goes with, I mean, obviously the role has evolved over time, but um, that's that's part of it, you know, your research and that and your playing is research, but also your ability to write articles and, and, and make publications and recruit students. And you don't recruit students, we all know this that you don't recruit students by being a badass player. That doesn't hurt. That definitely doesn't hurt. But unless you're teaching, you know, and even at the major huge schools like Eastman, they still have to get students to go there instead of the other big schools. Um, and uh, it's not just about that. And so I think it's important to remember that there's a lot more that goes into it than just your playing and teaching ability um, that you know, when you get the doctorate and when you've gone through academia, you have a better concept of how to navigate academia for the students. Um, and again, I don't mean to make a generalization about that, but um, I think it is important to remember that there is a lot more to the job that that's why some of those people may get overlooked.
3: I'm gonna take, uh slightly different tact at this in that a lot of the time it's not the people in the music department that are deciding that a doctorate is required because honestly it's at least here and I bet it's this way at a lot of other schools it's the accrediting agencies that have a huge amount of influence and power and control over how a school can hire, what the requirements are for a school to hire because the school's wanting to keep their accreditation because their accreditation is what keeps students being able to be licensed, et cetera, et cetera. And so like, like we all know cognitively that there are people, I mean, I studied, I studied with Nancy Zeltzman. She has a bachelor's degree and she's as good as there is. And I know for a fact that because of the accrediting agency SACS, we, it would be an, a ridiculous amount of work for us to be able to get her hired to teach you. That honestly, some schools, there's administration that is well above the department that's making these decisions. And so a lot of times when you're looking at a job saying, well, why are they looking for a doctor for this? It probably wasn't the people that are actually on the committee that made that decision. That decision is made well above the people that are, like, that are doing that. Um, and so I think that's something, it can be very frustrating for a lot of people because they see all these jobs come out, doctorate preferred, doctorate required, et cetera. And it's not, the people in the department know that and would value the people that are out playing and getting that experience and knowing that they're out there doing the job and stuff like that. But there's a lot more that goes into it than just that decision-making process.
1: Yeah, to Tracy's point, literally none of my teachers could get my job because of their degrees not one single teacher I had.
2: You beat Mark Ford, that's impressive.
1: <laughs> <laughs> Not a knock on them, just the, the degree thing. All, all my teachers have master's degrees, I, except for Dr. Shatroma. there's one, but Svet, Mark Ford, William Marsh, none of them.
2: No, it's crazy. It's I mean, it's like that here as well. Like we have to, we had someone with a master's who seemed like they would be a good fit, but we have to have someone with a doctorate to keep our accreditation. And and much to that, I don't want to uh backtrack too much, but there's a post a long time ago, and I, I won't go into the the side tangents that came of it, but about uh Aaron Trumbor, who got the job at JMU, my my former gig, the adjunct one, and uh people complaining about uh the the rate of pay for for that gig um and it ended ended up being you know like 28 to thirty thousand a year i think approximately give or take i can't say for certain anymore because i'm I'm not there but people land like oh that's insultingly low and blah 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 it's just like well yeah i agree like totally like they should it should be double that um you know it's a but at the same time it's like but that's not we don't control that like that's so far above that's not even within the school's pay grade that's the state like the oh sorry the commonwealth of virginia that you know that goes up to and um yeah yeah i i think people think uh departments have a lot more control over things than they do um it's like for us here uh we're having a big renovation this summer and it's to keep we're it's almost a 2 million dollar acoustic renovation um to keep our NASM certification because our acoustics are not up to the level of a NASM certified school. And suddenly when that accreditation is threatened, that money comes out of nowhere, it seems like. It's like, huh, I guess we did have $1.75 million in the budget to to fund this new, this new thing, so. Um,
3: Administrations are terrified of, accredita- of accrediting agencies. Absolutely.
0: Yeah, uh, I mean, if I could, pitch just my two cents um i think that in the real world um or in reality when i listen to people i don't care at all whether they have this degree or that degree and i don't think that that determines whether they're going to be a good teacher a good colleague i think it is incredibly important to be a good player uh to be inspiring because it doesn't matter whether you're teaching kids to read music Or to if they want to go out and have their Carnegie Hall level solo career, I still think that you should be the best that you can be. Um, But I think that there might be good intentions, but I think it's quite flawed to simply disqualify people who don't have um, doctorates. So there's frequently that term that says sort of like or or sort of commensurate, commensurate experience or something. Um, which is a very vague term, but says sort of like equivalent experience or a doctorate. So I guess some- Which is really,
3: sorry, which is really fancy for, we can sell it to the administration. Yeah. Yeah.
1: Actually, on that note, the jazz bass professor at the University of North Texas, largest jazz school in the world, uh, his qualifications are he has a high school diploma. Uh, And every single year they, I guess I've heard they have to file like some ungodly amount of paperwork just to like, keep that in the clear whatever. But yeah, that, that does happen.
2: Yeah. Casey doesn't have a doctorate. He's the last person I know of that has, I mean, he has a double masters and he has, of course, a very extensive performing career, but he's the last one I know of. um, that's gotten that junior track gig. Um, I I mean, I can't speak to his experiences, but, but yeah, you know, it is, it's obviously it's still possible. It really just depends on the, on the institution.
0: Yep, yep, it does. Brady Spitz asked, um, he said, I would be curious to see what committees actually value in a playing demonstration, what they've been impressed by in the past. It's so hard to demonstrate appropriate musicianship on timpani and drum set, which function much better in an ensemble than as a solo instrument, that the college job search game seems like a marimba and multi percussion contest sometimes. So, you know, you, we need to have some cool YouTube videos available or you know ready to send to the committee um do you agree with this i i personally brady so much love to you um i disagree that we can demonstrate musicianship what i think ends up happening is that people who don't listen to a lot of drum set or um timpani or whatever don't quite know how to tune in or listen they, they simply don't know how to listen to that stuff Always, but also I think that like exceptional levels of musicianship, yeah, you can break down all those barriers. But what do you all think? Uh, is it actually a game of uh, player marimba chops and, uh, and multi chops for people?
4: Um, I think I'm one of the few people who actually had a tenured percussion professor as the head of my committee when I applied for my job since we have two tenure track faculty on most instruments here. Most of the time, if you're applying for a vacant percussion position, uh, it's because there isn't a percussion professor there. Uh, And so, no one knows the standard repertoire for marimba, right? Um, Or whatever. Um, You know, we have an instrument that hasn't been around that long. But um, in general, I think it's really important to show everything that you can do competently um, because if you're the percussion professor, you have to teach all of the percussion. And so, yeah, we can't show that much, you know, musicianship on timpani. But most people who are at this level, who are a musician of any sort and play any instrument, can tell if something sucks, regardless of what instrument someone is playing. Um, And so, they're going to watch you play. They might be impressed by it, but I, you know, if basically the goal is make them not unimpressed, (laughs) you know, Um, don't give them anything bad to say. If you send a solid timpani video. Um, like no one's sitting there to get their musical, you know, you know, inspiration for the day from your three minute timpani video that they're watching on YouTube as part of your application, you know, while waiting for their food at McDonald's or something like, um, yeah. So I think it is important to just show your diversity, but on the other hand, um, you know, like, uh, I'm not a great, I'm not a great jazz drum set player. Um, I could have sent a jazz drum set video. I elected not to because I sent a bunch of other videos. And I honestly think if I had sent a jazz drums set video and it was clearly the worst one of the people they were considering, that would have been a negative. And so you can also, I think, sometimes have addition by subtraction. Um, but you do need to show everything that you can do. And as long as the video is of good quality, I think it's okay. I sent a video of me playing in the Brazilian ensemble when I was in school because we played some legit stuff and it was a good performance and I was clearly part of it. Um, and I think that's okay, because I can teach kids that if I need to.
3: I would I would say along that same lines too, is be show who you are as a musician and an artist, because you can't, this is a piece of advice I was given, every single person that's on the committee has a different definition of what a percussionist is and what a percussionist does. And you can't try, you can't attempt to try to cover all of that in your thing. So the best thing that you can do is be you. And if what you do is of interest to the people that are doing the hiring, then they're gonna look further at you Um, because, and this goes for like, when, when we eventually like, look at like the interview stage and stuff like that too. When you're sitting there and you're doing like a phone call or videos or whatever, you're going to have a flute professor, you're going to have a piano teacher, you might have the guitar teacher, you're going to have the band director, and every single one of those people is going to have a completely different definition of what being a percussion teacher is, what being a percussion performer is, and so the best thing I can say is be you, and if you're what they're looking for, then they're going to keep looking at you.
0: Yeah, well said. Well said. Um, I am, again, going to respectfully disagree (laughs) um, and restate that we should not um, think of timpani as lesser than and uh, really just be a stellar musician and don't look down upon any instruments and think that you can't express yourself there. Um, Caleb, I think you have some thoughts.
2: Just a short one. i did i feel like the the people we've interviewed and when i did my interview as well um like i did the silence must be the terry demay solo conductor piece at my interview here and that that was the big joke right because i was two of the people on the committee were the conducting staff here i was like oh i'm doing a piece for solo conductor and they're like yeah that's fun what are you really playing i was like no no like yeah okay no actually (laughs) i don't know what you're expecting but i'm not kidding around um but beforehand I i gave a good i mean you know a good three to four minute talk about hey this is the juxtaposition of five against three and it starts with checking your pulse with your thumb versus your wrist which have contrary pulses and the whole thing is this these two things trying to come together and i gave a little talk about why it was important i feel like you if you're playing excerpts you know, you would do the same thing. If you're, if you know, if you're playing Kiji, you would say, Hey, this is, this is the excerpt. This is why it's important to percussion. Here is how I would incorporate it into, you know, my playing and my teaching. And, you know, I think there's nothing wrong with, you know, wrong with explaining yourself. It's, it's a demonstration of your ability. Not a, it's not a solo show.
1: I think also, if you can come up with a really clever way to frame it, which is sort of what Caleb's talking about, but uh, there's that guy and I wish I could remember his name, Marco. He, I think he's an IU grad he might be able to help me out. But he has this video, it was like timpani karaoke, basically. And it's like an eight minute video of every timpani excerpt with a backing track. And so he plays there, he's pedaling like crazy and it's like, yeah, that's so impressive and demonstrating literally every timpani excerpt you can think of. Marco, do you know who I'm talking about? Is that ring a bell?
4: I don't, but that's kind of like what Kevin Bobo has done with the Marimba Solas. So yeah.
3: Be. Yeah. Kevin Bobo has 31 also, reasons why I was actually just watching that last night. <laughs> there's also but, the excerpt etude for stare drum mm-hmm. that does the same thing.
1: But yeah, I, I think it's like a, a John Tafoya sort of thing in general to do. I think he, John Tafoya actually calls it timpani karaoke. Um, but yeah, like if you can like demonstrate every timpani excerpt, along with the recording that you put together, like a spliced together thing that like, I think that's very impressive and would totally impress a committee um, and also the trumpet player is probably going to enjoy your orchestral excerpts a lot more than your, you know, contemporary marimba solo uh, as a lover of contemporary marimba solos myself. Um, so yeah, I, I don't, maybe it's just my my viewpoint is skewed, but I think that, yeah, you probably can't sit there and just play, you know, the Mozart 39 timpani excerpt unaccompanied and expre- expect people to be ex- uh, impressed by that, but I think a little bit of innovation could go a long way in showcasing your your musicality there.
0: Yeah, I I, uh, I agree. I disagree. <laughs> I love this. I think this is great. Um, I was just gonna say we also had a search here that I did not get to see all of, but you know I went to meet every candidate and I tried to show up for every recital uh, to see them. And uh, one thing that I did notice was that there was a person who was really promising and all these things that you mentioned, like they had a beautiful presentation, like paperwork was amazing. Um, I thought they were very sweet to speak to. And then came the recital. And as Marco said, you know, try not to unimpress people. I have not seen a more boring, like lifeless, really sad performance. And it was correct. You know, it was fine, but it was so Boring. That I I was in shock, especially because I felt the contrast between what they were promising through that paperwork and what all they do, and how much they travel and how much they perform versus how they sound was just like oh my god. Um, so Caleb says Xenia needs a glass of wine, maybe two for this. Was, for this one of them,
3: Ser,
2: one of them Serbian, Serbian liquors or something.
0: Siberian,
1: <laughs> yeah. yeah. Oh yeah. <laughs> Um, no, I, I found the video I talking about. It's by, uh, I might be mispronouncing this name, Eric Ripple, E R I C. Oh, yeah. He's
4: the Minnesota Orchestra.
1: Yeah. Yeah, he was a junior and I was a master student. Oh, yeah, actually, yeah. The video title is Crazy Excerpts Compiled by John Tafoya. So, but yeah, go check that out. And like, if you could do that in a recital or in a, you know, demonstration, you know, performing, playing demonstration on a university thing, I think you have the gig at that point. I mean, it's it's crazy good and very clever.
4: Shout out to Eric Ripple because he is amazing at timpani.
1: Yeah, very it's it's. We should actually just pause the podcast right now and I'll go watch that video. And then just, <laughs> it's it's that good, <laughs> but we won't.
0: Yeah, um, do your research when you pick what you're gonna send. But also, ultimately, I really agree with Tracy. Be yourself. Uh, I see now in the chat a lot of people say don't play Bach in an audition. I was advised to do the same I played Bach in my audition why because I am really passionate about that stuff and while I understand I could be offending a string faculty. I hope that my love and admiration for it shines through. Um, So you could make controversial choices, but also think about it, I think it's awesome that your recital gets to be short like it's 30 minutes or whatever that's awesome you're not going to bore anyone to death pick the best parts of the music. It's as diverse as possible. Don't stay on one instrument for too long, and just like, go. You can showcase the best parts of yourself, which is amazing. I think.
2: Hey, can I ask, since we have, since we have a good array of people, what s- some of the rep people played on their little mini recital was? Maybe Casigna.
0: Yeah. So I played. Uh... Bach G minor adagio from the violin, G minor violin sonata. I played Velocities, I played Stop Speaking, I played uh, an excerpt from Songs 1 through 9, and I played Saida, and that's it. Everybody? I
1: I played uh, variations on Japanese children's songs because I wanted something marimba-y and powerful. I played Stop Speaking because that has concert and rudimental elements and it's sort of chamber music because you're playing with the recording. Uh, and I did aphasia because I wanted something totally weird that was that made me stand out and look like a different, different person. Um, and actually I was just telling a student uh, in a lesson today that when I played aphasia, I tripped over my chair as I was getting seated for the piece uh, and then went through the, the whole piece, played it, Um, And then in the middle of my teaching demonstration, the student made a mistake and kind of winced, and I was like, yeah, like we all make mistakes, like if you don't advertise them, then no one will know, and I was like, who here by the end of my performance remembered that I tripped over the chair sitting down to play aphasia, and everyone was like, wait, you did, I told you, I didn't remember, (laughs) so (laughs) yeah, even something going wrong in a a performing demonstration, you can uh, make an example out of.
0: Yeah, well said. I also played Rebon. I just want to say that I, I, you know, I don't want to forget my buddy Zinakis. Um
2: you Played, you played what?
0: Rebon B. Raybon.
1: Rebons. Oh, oh, oh Rebons. 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 Rebox. Re-bon. 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 <laughs> um If that's not an Instagram clip.
4: One of the what tough parts about the the audition recital too is that like if you already have like a life. Um, For me, when I was auditioning for tenure track positions, I was already working my job at Tennessee Tech, and I was very busy. Um, You have to be able to put it together in the amount of time from when you find out. Um, And so I guess I actually still had a pretty full concert, but um, for me, it was a little more, I don't know if necessarily conservative is the word, but easy to put together. For me, I did one of my own marimba pieces. I did music for a video game. Um, Not the whole thing, because it's really long, but I did you know select movements that people would go ooh and ah. And then I also played a Bach movement and I did the, um, the B minor Cerebonne first partita. I ended with that so I could show them after all the booming and crashing that I could also make a musical line. Um, and then I did one of my own multiple percussion pieces. I did the last movement of Thracian rhythm. Um, and then I did Nine Lies by Anthony D. Bartolo on snare drum because I didn't want to risk electronics. Um, that was a big thing for me. I don't want to do electronics um, when I'm traveling to a new place for that reason. And then um, I played two movements of Graham Wedham's uh, Suite for Timpani, which I think is a more tuneful and enjoyable unaccompanied timpani piece that the non-percussionist would also enjoy.
3: I love the Wedham. That's one of my favorite timpani pieces. Um, let's see, I did uh, Wind, in the, Wind in the Bamboo Grove, the Abe um, etude homage to on marimba. Um, I've done... I do a solo version of Pyro Bowl, the John Bergamo piece that I can like use like frame drums and like turn it into like a multi percussion sort of thing That that um, is pretty easy to pull the, the like I bring the drums, I can pretty easily pull together like a kick drum and some other stuff for the pieces for it. Uh, Nancy Zeltzman's timpani solo, which is gorgeous and not <laughs> very often. Quattro Quattro by Nancy Zeltzman is a timpani solo. Is that published? That, yes. Wow, never heard of yep. it. And it's ever it's to me, it's exactly what you think Nancy's out. So I'm writing a timpani solo would be. It's melodic, it's groovy, it's got a lot of room for like different touch and stuff like that. Um, so I've played that on like auditions and stuff also. The excerpt etude, uh, I, it's fun to play and it's really easy to be like, now I'm going to play you all. It's like what we were talking about with the tippy piece. I'm now going to play you all of the orchestral excerpts on snare drum in this one piece. Um, So that has always worked pretty well for me in like that sort of situation also. So
4: So I just wanted to add, I guess, one thing to remember about the performance videos and the in-person recital, should you be fortunate enough to get to give one, is that you're being judged by the students, obviously, but also a committee of people who are very well-learned, knowledgeable, and talented musicians, even if they don't necessarily play their instrument they can tell if you're doing a good job or not. But they are also really good musicians, which means that they have opinions and sometimes strong ones. So when you get this, I've been on a committee where we had a complete disagreement over who played the best, where I'm like, honestly, there was a situation where I'm like, this person was actually kind of awful. (laughs) And one of the other people agreed with me. But then three other people had them as their top choice without any question. And I was like, how did that even happen? Like, I very much trust all of your opinions because you're all amazing at this, but what What did you hear? Um, And that's going to happen to you. When when you play, someone is going to hate what you played. That's just going to happen. And someone's going to freaking love it. Um, So it's just the most important, I think, to express the best that you are. You know, whatever you are, whoever you are personally, that's the most important part because you want them to hire you.
2: Uh, I did the Terry DeMay silence must be um Casey's etude knee minor one of my two mallet solos drift just to show off some of my writing and two mallet chops uh and then some Joe Tompkins uh etudes um because I think those those are pretty good um I I don't know I don't know about y'all but yeah all four of those pieces I prefaced with a good like 60 second like Hey, here's why this is cool. And here this this is why this matters to me and how it affects my teaching and performance.
1: But yeah. Yeah, I actually made program notes for mine. Just short, but
0: yeah. Oh whatever. I curated my output change, so <laughs> this could be the best and reflect yeah. the music. <laughs>
2: yeah, but, but you play Rebon. None of us played Rebon. Rebon ba or Rebon Ah?
0: Well, this room is full of smarty pants, isn't it? (laughs) Um, Thank you all so much. Uh, We're definitely gonna continue this conversation because there are other elements. There's the interview portion, which there's definitely stuff for all of us to learn. Um, The what to do during the Zoom interview, which as we said, is sort of like a prescribed list of questions and there are correct answers, Um, but then um, sort of what to do on campus, I think we should discuss all of that. Um, So, I appreciate you all. Thanks for sharing your experiences and knowledge, and we will see you and talk to you listeners in a week. See you in episode 326. Thanks, everyone. Kisses. Bye.
2: Kisses. Bye.
0: Kisses. Bye.